We're in our final week of a series that we've entitled Empty. Uh, this changes everything, focusing in on uh, the time between Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven, and those days that took place where Jesus, in encountering each of his disciples, seemingly has a life-changing effect on them and their ministry. We've been learning about how uh, Jesus changed through the work of the cross, that he delivers us from our sin, from our sorrow, from our second guessing that we learned about last week with Thomas, from our lackluster service we learned a couple weeks ago with regards to the disciples. And today we focus our time on looking at how he delivers us and how he changes our shame into restoration and ability to go off and to serve him. Today we look at the life of Peter, the famous disciple And we look at how we, just like Peter, can slay our shame. So let's put our attention uh, to God's Word this morning. I'm going to ask that you would stand again for the reading of God's Word, now that you have found John 21. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then we're just going to ask a blessing on our time. It says this in John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus... Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the, son of Z- the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, but even so many that the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were, not written, were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books to the, the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, what a way to close out this series by closing out an incredible gospel, a gospel that is written by the disciple whom you love, a disciple who saw you uh, raised up, a disciple who saw you go to the cross and be put into a tomb, and yet three days later to stand before this disciple, John. Lord, what words of testimony he gives to us. And Lord, as we close out this series, we come to a place that all of us from one time or another have struggled with the issue just as Peter has, and that is the issue of shame. Lord, we have failed you. We have failed others around us. We have failed ourselves at times. And Lord, the devil and and those around us seem to be relentless in their drive and desire to never allow us to forget those mistakes and issues. But Lord, I'm so glad that their words don't matter, but yours do. And Father, I thank you that you say in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that when we are forgiven, we are forgiven fully. And that you don't hold that against us. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place today. Lord, we've all fallen by the wayside. We've all chosen to go our own ways. And in those times where we've done that, Lord, shame has become a part of our lives. And some today find themselves in bondage to an issue of shame, never being able to move beyond it. Father, I pray that we would see in Peter's example today how we can slay that shame through the power that only Christ can give. So, Lord, I pray that we would see that our shame could be changed because of your resurrection and because of the power that you have as our Savior and Lord. Lord, now speak through me as we go to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In John chapter 21, we see John finishes out his gospel different than any other of the gospel writers. He closes with the thought under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of focusing in on Peter's restoration as a disciple under the ministry and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he finish that way? I mean, Matthew and Luke finish up their gospels giving a focus to the ascension into heaven and the great uh, commission that takes place. Mark speaks of that as well, but none of that is spoken about in John's gospel, and I'm quite frankly glad about that. Not that I don't want to hear more about the great commission or the ascension of Jesus Christ, but John finishes up the text in, in a word and in a way that is so important for me as a believer. 
as a, a guy who's just like Peter, had I not gotten this text, this part of the story, I may always wonder as I read First and Second Peter and hear about the accolades of Peter, how did he go from a place of such devastation with regards to his denial of Jesus to being the man of God that he would be in that first church as well as within that first century of Christianity that we would speak of him as one of the greatest Christians of all time? What allowed him to find victory after such a terrible defeat? As a boy who lived a lot like Peter, you know, Peter is a guy that we say he was kind of the ready, fire, aim type of guy. As a young boy who struggled with everything that doctors could say that I could struggle with, ADD, don't drink the red Kool-Aid, all of that stuff, kids hyperactive, I used to say things, I used to do a lot of things that would cause me a lot of shame because my body and my mind uh, were always uh, racing faster than they should. Things would come out of my mouth and actions would take place that after them I would feel a great deal of regret. And I think that's where we find Peter this morning, dealing with regret, dealing with the issue of shame. And it's not hard for us to think about this because, as I said in my prayer, I think for all of us, we can look back at a time in our lives where shame really grabbed a hold of us. Whether it was something we said or something that we have done, where we look back and say, boy, if if I could go back and change history, I would go back to that moment and I would change that, that just that 20 seconds had I not said that dumb thing or that that, uh, couple minutes of time where I I did that stupid thing. If I I just had the moment to go back and take care of it, I would. I got to think that most of us, if not all of us, could think back to a time probably when we were much younger, maybe not, where we could say, boy, if I could turn back the the hands of time, I would. But it's not just in regards to dumb things we say or or dumb things that we do. Some of it is maybe a sin in your life. Maybe there's a time in your life where you walked away from the Lord, even for a short amount of time. I wonder if David uh, could look back at his life at the end of his uh, long life as a king and a follower of God and said, man, There was about a week and a half there that, man, I just was not thinking all that clearly. And instead of choosing Christ and instead of following God, I followed my own ways and my own passions. Maybe some of you today find yourself saying, if I could only go back and turn from that sin, I wouldn't deal with the shame that I have today. I want to deal with this subject of shame, and I want to address it and and understand from Peter's life how we can once and for all get rid of that shame and we can begin to be the follower that Jesus Christ wants us to be. Because in Peter's life, we see victory from shame, and we need that victory as well. The reason why we need that victory is because we are a people that are known and are full uh, of failures. I love uh, thinking about some of the great people uh, who are known for all of their accomplishments and what they were known about before their accomplishments were ever made. An expert of a famous football coach said uh, of Vince Lombardi that he possessed minimal football knowledge, he lacks motivation, and he probably will never win a football game as a coach. Speaking of Beethoven, uh, a teacher once said that Beethoven handled the violin awkwardly. He preferred to play his own um, odd compositions instead of improving his technique and that his teacher would call him a hopeless uh, musician 
and never thought he would ever become a composer. Walt Disney was fired from three jobs as a newspaper editor for a lack of ideas. He went bankrupt several times until, of course, he built the great Disney empire. Thomas Edison's teacher said of young Thomas Edison, he was too stupid to do anything. Who's, who's shameful now? Albert Einstein uh, was in many ways a failure as a kid. He did not speak until about five years of age. He could not read until he was eight. His teacher described him as mentally slow, unsociable, and adrift forever in his foolish, childish dreams. He was expelled and refused admittance to the Zurich Polytechnic School. All of that to tell us, no matter who we are, as great as we may end up being, all of us can look back to a season of time and see failure. You see, many times what will happen is, is one of two things. We will look at Peter's life and say, man, this guy is awesome and will forget his failure, or we will only think about his failure and forget what God has done. God wants us to have a full-orbed, holistic view of who we are and when we fail, how to address it so we can rise above it and move forward. And so we need to know about this issue of shame. So let's look at the first point this morning. Shame comes as a result of our failures. We've learned that we all have failures. In fact, Jesus, uh, or Paul tells us in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all failures as Christians and as human beings when it comes to our holy God. And as a result of sin, we find find ourselves failing God and failing others. And as a result of that, there's an emotion that comes out. I want you to uh, write this uh, definition down. It's not on the screen, but I think it's important. Shame has been defined. It has been defined as the painful feeling of failure, the painful feeling of failure arising from the consciousness if you don't know how to spell that, ask your neighbor. The consciousness, so the painful feeling of failure arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, that is done by you or someone else. So let me go over it. It's a pretty long and lengthy definition. Shame has been defined as the painful feeling of failure arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, that is done by oneself or another close to you. Now, as we look at this definition, we need to understand that Peter has a place where he looks back in his life and he sees something dishonorable, something that is painful, something that uh, was done improperly. He feels ridiculous. He has egg on the proverbial face, if you will, and he's the one that has done it, and he's dealing with the bondage of this issue. And it's not just Peter that deals with this, it's all of us, because one of the greatest hindrances to us living out our Christian life is that sin or that issue that holds us back, that issue or that sin that keeps us from going and doing more for God and his kingdom. 
In fact, one of the greatest things that we can do, one of the greatest medicines for shame is that we confess sin one to another. That's what the scripture tells us to do. And yet, shame is the very thing that keeps us from the medicine that we need. I mean, if we were really honest with ourselves this morning, we could fill our entire time together by each of us standing up and saying, you know what, this is what I did this last week. I know I'm a Christian, but I got so angry at my kids, that four-letter word came out. I know it shouldn't have, and I'm ashamed that it did, but it did. And another one of us gets up and says, you know what, I know I'm a Christian, but, but I, I started to, as I was walking in the mall, you know, a pretty girl walked by, and, and I couldn't take my eyes off of her. I know I'm not supposed to do that, and I'm ashamed of it, but, but I need to confess it because I need to be restored. Let me tell you something. When we fail to confess sins one to another, when we fail to confess our sins to God, we lose out on the medicine, on the balm that, if you will, that will take care of our shame. And so when our mouths stay quiet, then what begins to happen is that shame has an opportunity to grow. And some of us have learned how to deal with that shame by just letting it go because it's too hard. It's too hard to tell anybody else about it. It's too hard because what will people do? They may judge you. They may think that you're not the Christian that you've made yourself out to be. And as a result of that, many of us, including your preacher, are too ashamed to identify that we are failures, that we've got skeletons in our closet and we need a savior and we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us get through it. Now here's the dilemma in regards to shame. Shame likes to throw parties. It loves it and it invites all of its friends. It invites its friends like alienation, inadequacy, helplessness, powerlessness, defenselessness, weakness, insecurity, uncertainty, and unworthiness, hurt, intimidation, defeat, and rejection. And I could keep going on. And so you sit there and you've got this issue in your life. And I know everyone is thinking about that one issue. They wouldn't tell their neighbor about it, but they're thinking about it. And you think about that one issue, that moment in time, and that's where the hurt and the pain and the, and the turmoil begins to well up within you. Shame brings us into, uh, shame comes into full view when we look at how shame impacts our lives. And you would say, well, Tim, if it's so bad, if shame is such an issue, if that was the issue for Peter, why didn't he just let it go? Why didn't he just say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about it anymore? The reason why for us as believers we're unable to let it go is for two reasons. Number one, people don't let us forget things. People don't let us forget things. I'll tell you, um, probably the, the most difficult thing I have uh, in, in my life, I'm 35 years old, one of the most difficult things that I hate to hear is, Tim, I remember when. Ugh. I hate that statement. I remember when, and then there's the always when you dot, dot, dot. It's never good. And it's something that, that I've had to learn to deal with. And I look forward one day to a little revenge when I can say that about some of you. I remember when, and it usually comes from the older to the younger. My son Joshua can't say to me, Dad, I remember when you were... He can't do that, but I can. And we do that. And maybe sometimes we don't mean to do that, uh, but many times, and, and this is important for us to remember as older individuals that when we do that to younger people, what we're doing is bringing up their past. 
We're just bringing up their past, especially when they are areas of shame. And so I would say to parents, I would say to us older individuals, especially when we're dealing with younger adults, teenagers, and the like, be careful because we may be adding to someone's shame. The other thing that we need to understand and recognize is that when we sin, when we fail, we have an enemy who just loves it. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And what that means is that each and every opportunity he gets, the devil goes to God and he looks, the devil takes one of us and he says, hey, uh, God, have you seen your son, Tim Bidal? Yeah, that, that overweight one down there. Yeah, him. Yeah, have you seen what he's doing? Do you hear what he's talking about? How, how can he be a Christian? And while Jesus says, hey, I've paid for his sins, I've dealt with his failures, what the devil does then is says, well, I can't win with him, so I'll go talk with Tim. And he'll, he'll send thoughts into our minds and say, how can you be a Christian? You can't do those things. Don't you read the Bible? You don't even read the Bible, so how can you know what you can't do? I don't see you reading the Bible, and you act one way at church, and then you do these things. Oh, those people, if they really knew who you were, oh, man, you're bad news. And some of you are falling into this bondage of shame Because the devil is telling you that you're unloved by God, you're unloved by your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that your sin is still before him. It has been once said that the devil is all about about your past because it's unbearable to have him think about his future. And so he focuses in on your past, he gets you thinking about all your mistakes, all your issues, And when that happens, just tell the devil, say, you know what? My past has been forgiven, but your future has not. So take that, buddy. We need to recognize that it's not easy to deal with this issue of shame. So we need to know where Peter struggled with it. This is the guy that we're dealing with. And I want you to, first of all, turn in your Bibles. You're in John. Go to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. Because we need to see where this failure takes place in Peter's life. We've dealt with our own. We're, we're dealing with that. We're cultivating and understanding where that failure's at in our own lives. But let's look at Peter's. And Peter, we see, first of all, the place of failure. We know that Peter uh, denied Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was arrested. That, that is pretty well known by most everybody that's been involved in church or, or known of the uh, Passion Week story. And we need to understand where it takes place. Did Peter just make a decision on that day that he was going to uh, fail Jesus in this way? I'm going to say no, he didn't but he was walking a road that led him there. Notice what Matthew 26, 31 through 35 says. Matthew 26, 31 through 35. It says the following. I'll let you get there. Jesus is speaking to them. He's speaking to all of his disciples, and he's prophesying what is going to take place that night. So this is the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed, He says the following, this very night you will all, that's all the disciples, will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now let's stop there. Jesus says, all right, I'm about to be betrayed. And when I'm betrayed, when I'm arrested, You're all going to take off. You're all going to go running for the hills. You're not going to want to be around me at all. 
And that's exactly what happens. And we hear story after story within the Gospels that when, they leave, uh, when Jesus is taken away, they leave, they bolt. Now here's our buddy Peter, Mr. Outspoken Peter, Mr. I'm going to talk first and let my brain catch up, Peter. He hears Jesus say this and Peter responds, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So they're sitting around in a group, and the 12 are there, and Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away. I wonder if Peter stood up and he says, hey, I don't know about these yahoos over here, but you don't have to worry about me, Jesus. I'll never fall away. I'll never be the one to do that. They may lack the ability to do that, but I don't. The first issue where the place of failure begins is in Peter's overestimation of his spiritual vitality, an overestimation of his identity as a Christian, his vitality, his, how healthy he was. Here's the issue. Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, even though you're God and even though you're omniscient and even though you, you know all things and you're able to uh, take care of all the things that you can because you're God, I'm going to disagree with you. And he argues with them. Jesus says, hey, you're going to all fall away. And Peter says, no, Jesus, you don't know who I am. You don't know how strong I am. There are some of us today who are falling to a place of failure, and we don't even know it because we have thought that we are a lot smarter than even Jesus thinks we are. We think that we've got it all put together. It's not very hard to illustrate this today for a man in Oakland, California named Harold Camping. You think you're smarter than God? Well, we're all still here now, aren't we? And when we begin to have an overestimation of who we are, look out, because shame is not that far around the corner. Failure is just around the bend. He has an overestimation of who he is. Now, Peter uh, comes to this statement, and, and, and he has to be thinking, and I don't know how much he knew of the book of Proverbs, but I wonder if a chill went up his spine in Proverbs sixteen eighteen. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, Peter had said some pretty great things. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter say, or, uh, the disciples say, well, some say you're Jim, Jeremiah, others say John the Baptist, others say one of the prophets. But who do you say I am, Jesus asked. And Peter, hitting a home run this time, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And I wonder if because he had made that statement earlier, he thought, man, I can't do anything wrong. Some of you are so close to failure because you think that you have got it all figured out. You think that, that you have all the right answers. Let me tell you something. My greatest failure as a Christian came when I started thinking I was better of a Christian than I really was and that I could do no wrong when it came to my Christian walk. And God said, oh, you know what? Let me just pull some of that protection away from you, some of that blessing away from you, and I'll watch you fall. And boy, was he right. This is what Peter does. His place of failure isn't just that he denies Jesus, but he's bringing that on, if you will, long before it. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He's speaking to Peter. But Peter, arguing with Jesus, declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then I love what it says, and all the other disciples said the same. 
So Peter says, hey, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm a strong Christian. I am supportive of you in every way. And even if I have to die, they're going to have to kill me. They're going to have to pull my bloodied hands off of your body before I'll ever let you go. If you remember right, a servant girl asked Peter, do you know him? And Peter says, I don't. Where's the bloodied cold hand on the leg of Jesus never letting go? He's gone. I think it's a bit ironic that then the disciples all say, yeah, yeah, we agree. We, we will die too before we will go, trying to stick with their buddy, Peter. Now notice what caused this. This place of failure comes, and it's important that we recognize it because we will say very quickly, I will never do that. Don't ever let those words come out of your mouth. As a Christian, I will never, I'll never uh, commit adultery. I'll never cheat like that. I'll never uh, speak bad words. I'll never, I'll never. Let me tell you something. If, If you are not walking with the Lord, you can do anything. You can do anything. People always say, well, I don't struggle with that sin. Let me make this abundantly clear. I struggle with all sins. That's what sinners do. They struggle with all sins, all sins, all sins. I don't have to wonder, well, I don't have a personality that gives me a disposition to that. Then there may be some truth to that. I'm not an angry individual, so I don't usually see sin come out uh, in, in my anger. But let me tell you something. I sit there long enough. I think on those things long enough. And just like my angry brothers and sisters, I can fall to sin in that way. If it were not for God's grace, we would sin in every way. We would sin in every way. Now notice what it says. There's another thing, and I know this is a long first point, but stick with me. One of the other issues that Peter runs into to this place of failure, even before he denies Jesus, notice verse 58 of Matthew 26. It tells us in Matthew 26, uh, 58, that all of them in verse 56 all flee. And in verse 58, it tells us that Peter decides to follow the Lord. But notice what it says. He follows Jesus from afar. In the text, it says that he watched to see what would happen. If you want to know if you are on your way to failure, just allow yourself to be distanced from Jesus. Had Peter been with his brothers and sisters in Christ, had Peter been close to Jesus when those three people had come and asked Jesus, or asked Peter, do you know Jesus? I got to believe in my heart that Peter would have responded correctly. But he had distanced himself. There's nobody else with him. He's by himself. There's no brothers or sisters in Christ with him. Jesus isn't near him. And he finds himself, the text says, as a spectator, watching what may take place. Beware, brothers and sisters, when you distance yourself from the people of God and from Jesus Christ, you will find yourself inevitably in a place where it will become far easier for you to disown Jesus than it is when you're here. Because it's easy for us to amen that Jesus is Lord and Savior here. But what happens when you're by yourself in your school? What happens when you're by yourself in your neighborhood? What happens when you're all alone at your workplace? It becomes a whole lot more difficult. 
Because we're set apart from God and we're set apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's the thing. The place of failure happens quickly. In a matter of hours from boasting about how close he is to Christ and how strong his relationship is, he goes to denying even knowing Jesus, even knowing him, not just being a disciple, but even knowing that he has any aware uh, understanding of who Jesus is. Now notice what it says then that takes place. He denies Jesus three times. The rooster crows. Now notice the pain that comes, the pain of failure. And this is where shame begins to manifest itself. We're still in Matthew 26. The text tells us that he denies uh, Jesus third time. And that the rooster crows, announcing a new morning. And it says in verse, 20, or verse 75, Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus that had been spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And it says, He went outside and wept bitterly. That phrase there, wept bitterly, literally means that he was completely undone. His insides began to turn inside out, if you will. He was filled with remorse. He was filled with hurts and pains because of his failure. He knew that he had wronged the Lord. He knew he had violated a relationship that was so incredibly precious and sacred. He had become a miserable man. And this is true for every child of God who decides to turn away from the will of God and to follow their sin. And soon enough, we will realize that sin brings with it pain, suffering, and misery. It does with Peter. That's why Proverbs 13, 15 tells us, good understanding wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Say that with me. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Just ask a brother or sister around you who's found themselves dabbling in sin and ask them, hey, how did that turn out for you? I'm hard-pressed to think anybody would say, that was awesome. It may have been for a season. As Moses understood that sin for a season may be fun, it may be pleasurable, Uh, but ask someone, maybe someone older, and say, you know what? Some of the things that you did, some of the wild pursuits that you lived as a young adult, how did that work out for you? I'm assured that many of them will say, I wish it never would have happened, the pain and the misery that came. Gone was the peace that Peter had. Gone was the sense of God's presence. Gone was any kind of power and joy in his soul. Sin had become a thief to him, a robber. It stole everything away from him. And as a result of that, Peter finds himself undone. Notice the price. Finally, the price. As if the pain isn't enough, there's more. After Peter sins, he loses that fellowship, that peace, and that joy. Things would be different. They would never be the same. He would never, uh, at that point, in that place of unforgiveness, he would never have that relationship with Jesus. He'd never be able to look Jesus in the eye. He would never be able to do that, let alone minister to him. And I wonder if there was a part of him that said, you know what, I'm done. It's it's over. There's, There's nothing left for me to do. Well, we believe in the eternal security of the believer. There have been times where I have sinned and felt at that moment such great shame and such great loss that I felt as if I wasn't saved. Now, I know the Bible says that I can't lose my salvation, but there are moments in my life where I've done some pretty ugly things where I've said, man, I can't believe I've done this way. 
I don't even feel the presence of God. I don't feel the presence of the Savior in my life. It's because sin is a cruel taskmaster. It'll beat you up silly. It will. And if you haven't recognized that, and if you haven't seen that yet, just give it a little time. Just keep feeding it, and it will destroy you. And it destroys Peter. He fails. He fails big time. And so what happens to Peter? What is Peter going to do? The resurrection takes place. It gets us into our text in John. We see that he has found the place of failure. He's felt the pain of failure, and he's paid the price of failure. Now notice what takes place. Go to John 21. Let's get into our text. I know that's a lot, but we need to understand where this shame comes from. And in John 21, it tells us after Jesus has appeared to his disciples, this is twice, he appears to them on the night of Easter, and he appears to them seven days later with Thomas. This is the third time Jesus is going to appear. But before he does, it says after, in verse 1, Jesus appeared to his disciples again by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, there's our buddy. Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel. Some of the other disciples are there together with him. Peter says, I'm going to go fish. And he tells them that, and they say, we'll go with you. I want you to understand a couple things. When you're at a place and in the pain and paying the price of failure, it is going to affect your choices. Notice, Peter says, after seeing Jesus, I'm going to go fishing. Now, there's some debate on what Peter is doing here, what he's doing here. Now, most commentaries believe that Peter is living his life and making decisions based on his failure. And what we mean by that is Peter's going to his old way of life. Why would he do that? This is the first time that we've ever seen Peter going fishing uh, by himself. And commentators believe that what he's doing is saying, ministry with Jesus is done. I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be a missionary. And so I better just go, and instead of worrying about doing that ministry thing, I'm just going to go do what I'm good at. And there are some of us who have failed, and we've said, you know what? Because I failed... God can't use me. There's nothing that God can do uh, to use me for his kingdom. And so I'm just going to be the best at whatever you are uh, good at. For me, I'm just going to go back to cooking uh, pork chops and chicken. That's what I'm good at. And I'll just leave it at that because obviously I'm not good enough to be a servant of God's. So Peter does that. Now notice what happens. When we make choices, we need to be careful because there are others watching. Notice what his companions do. They say with him, we'll go with you. Be careful as a parent, as a leader, whether in a church or, or in some, side of, some setting, be careful that you don't allow your sin and your failure to affect others. Peter goes and he says, you know what, I, there's nothing to do here. I, I don't think God's going to use me. I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And the other guy say, let's go with him. What are we going to do? I mean, we denied Jesus too. We, we took off on Jesus as well. And they go fishing as well. As parents, we need to be very careful because there are people watching us. My three boys, whatever I put on with clothes, it could be 40 below zero outside, and I put on a pair of shorts, and they'll argue with their mom, and they'll say, hey, daddy's wearing shorts. Why can't I? And we need to understand that if they're watching what we wear, how much more are they watching how we respond in those difficult circumstances? How, how much are they watching when we're watching a certain show on TV or listening to something? Uh, how, how much are they watching? I'll tell you as a parent, they're watching. They're little mimics. They're little mimes, if you will, who just go around. They're not mimes because they're too noisy to be mimes. They, they mimic. They're loud mimics, but uh, they are always watching. Leader, uh, Peter, the leader that he is, 
has a group of companions that go with them. Now notice what the consequences are. uh, Peter goes, John tells us that Peter says he's going fishing. They say, we're going to go with you in verse 3. They got into the boat. They're professional fishermen, and they catch, what does that word say? What does it say? What did they catch? Say it again. Okay, the Greek is really important here. I want you to understand this. Write this down. That word nothing in the Greek literally means nothing. That's what it means. Zero, nada, nothing. There's nothing. I wonder if while they were fishing, they were asking, man, we've really lost our touch. Things aren't working the way they used to be. We really used to be good at this. They're not anymore. They catch nothing. Let me tell you something. When you choose to follow your own ways and you say, you know what, instead of seeking forgiveness and pursuing restoration with God, I'm going to do my own thing. Let me tell you something. When you do that, you will do nothing when it comes to eternal value of things. You won't accomplish anything. Oh, you'll build this and you'll, you'll be known for that. But at the end of the day, you will have accomplished nothing. Peter goes to his old way of life and he accomplishes nothing in the process. So here's Peter, feeling the pain, paying the price of failure because of him denying Jesus. It's affecting his choices. It's putting uh, an opportunity for companions to go with him. And now he finds himself unable to accomplish anything. What is this guy going to do? And this is where a lot of us find ourselves today. And I want you to know point number two is that shame is removed through the words of a faithful friend. It is removed through the words of a faithful friend. Here we have the disciples out fishing. And for a whole evening they catch nothing. And it's here that Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up on the shore. About 100 yards off, uh, they are in uh, the uh, Sea of Tiberias. And we need to understand a couple things that help us in our shame. The first thing I want you to know is that the first thing that Jesus does is that Jesus finds Peter. Jesus finds Peter. And you say, well, why is that so important? Is it when Peter says in the boat, I'm not catching anything, and Jesus, I know that I'm supposed to be with you. I know I'm supposed to be walking in accordance of your will. I know I should come and say I'm sorry for falling into the failure of sin that I did. Peter doesn't say any of that. Peter is still dealing with his shame and his own demons at that point, and it's there that Jesus shows up. I want you to know that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we can go to Jesus. We don't have to do anything to to make ourselves ready to meet Jesus. Jesus is there, and Jesus is always there, ready to receive us as the Father did in the story of the prodigal son. He's there. And Jesus goes and he finds Peter in his place of defeat. Now notice the next thing that we see. He feeds them. Verse 12 says that Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, how does this all fit into it? Now, I want you to understand some of the connections that you're going to see. First of all, we know that Peter denied Jesus three times. We'll talk about that in a moment when we get to that part of the text. We also need to understand, when did Peter deny Jesus? Was it in the afternoon? How many say afternoon? Okay, nobody says afternoon. How about early evening? How about later in the evening? How about right before the the morning comes? How many would say that? Right before what crowed? The rooster, okay? When does Jesus meet Peter and the disciples? Early afternoon? Late evening? Around midnight? Or right at the break of dawn? Right at the break of dawn. 
It seems that Jesus is setting up a scenario to be a reminder to Jesus. It is Jesus standing by a burning fire. At one of the points in Peter's denials, he's standing near a burning fire. And he's asked, do you know that Jesus? And he says, no. So here's Jesus next to a fire. Now, we can make more of this than we need to, but I think it's a bit ironic that Jesus is setting up the same time near a similar situation at the break of day near a fire. Three times he's going to ask Peter about this issue. And here Jesus, now it says he's going to feed him. Now, what's so big about this issue of feeding him? In our culture, it means nothing. In the Middle Eastern culture, it means the world. You do not eat with anybody until you have restored every element of a relationship. When my grandmother uh, from Iraq uh, was living, uh, she had a home in Boulder Hill and always would throw these big Middle Eastern um, uh, events and dinners. And uh, inevitably, one of the boys, one of the, the grandchildren, would inevitably always find themselves in trouble. If it wasn't me, it was one of my brothers or cousins. And we would inevitably uh, be taken uh, into the back room and disciplined. And we'd be left there for, for a while, a timeout, and, and all the other stuff that goes on with regards to that. And then it would be time, well, inevitably, I'd be finding myself sitting in the back room, and I would hear that dinner is going to be served. And I'd say, oh, they're going to start without me. But my grandma would not allow dinner to be started until I was brought from the back room and brought to the table. And the reason why is because hospitality says, until we can eat together, we can't do anything else. And if we can't eat together, then we're not a family. And so I'd come out, and of course, I'd been spanked, and and I'd, you know, be hiccuping, you know, you know what kids do after they've been spanked. And my grandma would come in. My grandma's like four foot four inches tall. She was like Yoda, okay? And she would come in, and she would, she would come and come on, son, and, and she would take me to the bathroom and just take a nice wash, uh, washcloth, warm water, and wash off my face and say, get rid of those tears. We love you. Now you come. And, and the thing that I loved about I never loved the spanks or the discipline, but I loved getting spanked at Grandma's house because she would bring you out, and she was the only time she would take Grandpa and say, Grandpa, you sit over here. And she would put that disciplined little kid at the head of the table. And she'd say, now the family's here. Now let's eat. Jesus invites Peter. And he invites Peter and the disciples to come. And you know who the honored guest is? It's Peter. There's no dialogue with anybody else in that conversation. It's Jesus and Peter. The others are spectators. And Peter is set at the head of the table and he says, I want you here. And the reason why is I know there's an issue here. But if we can't eat together, we're not going to resolve these things. And so right away we recognize that Jesus has already forgiven Peter. Do you know that in your shame and in your struggle with sin, Jesus has already forgiven you? It's already done. You've been justified. You are free from your past sins just as much as you're freed from your future sins in the eyes of God. You are as pure as wind-driven snow. That doesn't mean you feel that way, though. And so in Jesus' eyes, Peter's forgiven. But he recognizes that Peter is struggling with his shame, struggling with his failure, and Jesus meets him. He finds him, he feeds him, and then he frees him. Write that down. He frees him. Within this, we see that Jesus frees 
Peter. How does he do it? He makes inroads. Peter, I know you're not going to come to me. I'm going to come to you. I know that you are struggling to even look me in the eye, but I'm going to come to you. Now, I want you to notice one thing that, that Jesus or that Peter does. And this is classic Peter. Because in the text, it says that Peter, in seeing Jesus, he gets, uh, stands up in the boat, he puts his outer garment around him, and he jumps into the water. And you say, wait a minute, I thought he was dealing with shame. Why would he want to do that? Because what Peter wants to prove is his allegiance to Jesus. Let me show you, Jesus, how excited I am to see you. Have you ever done that with someone you've hurt, someone you have an issue with, and you know that it's not the best thing? And so, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're good buds, and we, we like each other a lot. And you know there's an issue there. Peter finds himself trying to prove himself to Jesus. He doesn't have to do that. He just needs to have a conversation with them and start living in light of the freedom that Jesus gives. Some of you have sinned, great and difficult sins, just like me, and we're free from them. If you're a child of God, you're free from all that sin. That's been taken care of on the cross of Calvary. But if you want to have an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, meaning with regards to fellowship, then you need to get right with God. You need to get right with Christ. How do we do that? One final thing is is that shame is reversed through an obedient future, through an obedient future. This is where we see the application, and I want to be clear about this. There are many who struggle with the issue of shame. There are many whose past haunt them. There are many who feel that their sins are always before them. Maybe you have a divorce in the past. You say, I can't get beyond it. Maybe it's an extramarital affair. Maybe it's some sort of cheating and lying. Maybe it's an issue of bitterness, of anger. Maybe it's something that you've done in the past that nobody knows about except for you and God, and you just can't get beyond it. Understand that if you're a child of God, let none of those things define you. Let none of those things become who you are. As a young person, I allowed my mistakes and my sins to define who I was instead of looking at what Christ had made in me and what he wanted to see done. Now notice what he does. Jesus then begins to restore Peter. And the first thing he tells Peter to do is to live a life of service Live a life of service. Notice verse 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, really, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said, to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, why? Because it's the third time, three denials, three affirmations of love. He says, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. The meal's done, and Jesus asked the question, do you love me more than these? There's a good debate amongst commentators. Does, uh, do you love me more than these mean the fish? Do you love me more than your old way of living? Do you love me uh, more than your old occupation? Or does it mean, do you love me more than these disciples? I tend to believe that what he's saying is, do you love me more than these disciples? Because his place of departure, his place of failure was that he said, even though all of these will fall away, I never will. And so the question is asked, do you love me three times? 
And notice what his response is. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In our, in our English, we would not see this. But what Jesus says in the original language is, Jesus says, do you love me with an agapao type of love, an agape type of love? Peter responds and he says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The difference between the two, and write this down, what Jesus is asking is, do you love me with a sacrificial kind of love? And Peter responds and says, yes, Jesus, you know I love you socially. That's a big difference. There's a big difference between loving someone with sacrifice and with a love that only God can give and loving someone socially. I love you like a brother. And each time Jesus says, hey, you need to love me with greater than that. But then Peter's in a quite a bit of a quandary. You say, well, why would Peter say that? Why would Peter not say, Lord, you know that I agapao you? Here's the reason why. Because the last time he did that, he failed. The last time he said, Lord, I love you. I'm, I'm with you all the way to the end. He failed. And so what does a smart individual do? A smart individual says, if I can't live up to that, I tried and I couldn't live up to that. He goes down one and he says, Lord, I would love to be able to tell you, I agapao you, but I know who I am. And right now I can't commit anything more than, than phileo love because I blew it the last time. And the last thing I'm going to do is blow it again. But here's where Peter gets it right. And the third time he says, Lord, you know my heart. And I think deep down inside, Peter has an agapao kind of love for Jesus. And he says, you know me better than I know myself. What's the difference? The difference is, is last time he and Jesus had this conversation, he said, Jesus, I know you think you know me, but you really don't. Now he says in humility, not pride, Lord, you know my heart. You know all things. You know that I love you. You know where I'm at. And some of us need to have a conversation with Jesus today and stop articulating and saying all this, Jesus, you know how much I love you and all this, and say, Jesus, you know my heart. You know my heart that I love you. You know in my heart that the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, you know that I love you and I want to serve you, but, but you know the sin that so easily entangles me. I love you, Jesus, but I'm a failed and I'm a flawed individual and I need your grace each and every moment of my life. It is this life that, of service that that's where it takes place. Each time Jesus says, feed my sheep, take care of my, uh, uh, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep and feed my sheep. I don't have time to get into it, but I, I will tell you if you want to study that and understand it, what Jesus is saying is you're going to be involved in ministry to all types of people with all types of ages, with all types of backgrounds, with all types of smells, with all types of issues. You're going to minister to them all. And I think that's important for us to remember as Christians. When we are given a life of service by Christ, we don't say, well, I'm only good with kids or I'm only good at preaching or I'm only good at handing out bulletins. We are called to feed and to minister to all people in all scenarios. How would you like it if I was uh, asked in front of you all, someone comes in and says, uh, we need, uh, Tim, we need you to help in the nursery. And I say, you know what? I don't do kids. I'm an important guy. I, I only preach to the adults, you know, the ones who really can respond. I, 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 who am I? Am I I'm not going to hold a kid. It's beneath me. No. In a life of service for Christ, we do what God calls us to. 
in all ways and all settings. Number, point number two there, a life of surrender. 18 through 20, I need to finish this up. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went around where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. I want you to understand that Peter is given the same ministry that we are called to, and that is to a life of surrender. Understand twice Jesus says, follow me. You want to get rid of the shame in your life? You want to get rid of the issues of your past? Then today, make a decision that you're going to follow Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful thing. We have an individual at our Grace campus who knew me as a high schooler. And uh, someone said, what's it like to, to hear Tim preach? He was telling me this. He was at a, a reunion, class reunion. And he says, we heard Tim's a preacher. What's it like? He says, it's not the same Tim. He's a different guy. I wanted to hug that guy. Because if it was the same Tim, the, the, the one who would talk about Jesus with the Christian friends and then live like garbage the next moment, and being that schizophrenic Christian, I, I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And I'm so glad that through a life of service and a life of surrender, people see a different Tim. And if you have a past, if you have an issue that goes in your past, don't let that define you. But what that means is you've got to give some new press. You've got to give them something now to focus their time and attention on. Notice what Peter does. He follows him, and he's going to follow him to the end. It says it indicates what kind of death that Peter would have. Eusebius, a great early church father, said that Peter would be in prison 30 years after this text was written as a result of preaching Christ. He would be placed, he was about to be placed on a cross for his testimony for Jesus Christ. And tradition says that he saw it unbecoming to die just like Jesus did. And tradition tells us that Peter asked his captors to turn him upside down so that he would die on a cross upside down. You want to talk about surrender? You want to talk about a life of service? Peter lived it. Peter lived it to the point that nobody brings up anywhere in the text Beyond this passage, the failure that Peter had, because he wasn't defined by it. He was defined by the great work that he had done. Finally, selflessness, and I will close with this. Peter saw John, it says in verse 21, and he says, Lord, what about him? You're talking about how I'm going to die. What about him? What about John? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain until after I return... What is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the believers that disciple uh, would not die. This is John speaking of himself, but Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, I will remain, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? I want you to understand something. There seemingly is a little bit of a competition between Peter and John. And they're, they're trying to figure out these things. And what Jesus says is, don't worry about them. Let me tell you something. We have a way in our family just like we do in our family at home, to get into sibling rivalries. Well, he does this, then I'll do that. And if he does that, I'll do this. And we do that because we want to one-up one another. And what Jesus is telling Peter is, don't worry about anybody else. And some of us need to stop worrying about everybody else. And here's the reason why. Some of us live lives of shame because we're comparing ourselves with someone else. 
I'm a failure. Well, why am I a failure? Because look at all that so-and-so's doing. I can't live like that. And what Jesus is telling Peter is, don't worry about anybody else. You follow me. You live a life of surrender. You live a life of sacrifice for me. And you will do yourself well. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. You follow Christ. And watch God move. We need to understand that if we obey Christ today, we'll forget the past. It's already forgotten in Jesus' mind. And so whatever is struggling, whatever issue in the past you're struggling with, whatever holds you in bondage, today say, Lord, please forgive me. Once and for all, I, I want to sense and I want to know your forgiveness in my life. Please forgive me. And Lord, out of a gratitude in my heart for you forgiving me, I want to now follow you and I'm going to. And then don't let that issue define you anymore. When we put our eyes on Jesus and we allow Jesus to lead us in the days to come, we will slay every shame that is in the past. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you intended for John to write this passage of scripture. And Lord, I know we've gone through a whole chapter and there's much there that we never even touched on. But Lord, on this issue of shame, on this issue of failure with regards to Peter, I pray that we would see ourselves in much of that. I pray for those who find themselves walking that road to failure, distancing themselves, thinking higher of themselves than they ought to. Lord, I pray that they would turn from that today before it's too late. Lord, I pray for those who have already fallen to a sin or to many sins, who look back at the past in their lives and, and say, oh, it's so embarrassing. I'm so ashamed of the things I've done or the things that I've said. I can't believe I did that. For those that find themselves there, Lord, I pray in this moment right now that once and for all, they would confess that to you. Lord, I have failed you. And in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would recognize that it's forgiven. That you've thrown it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. And that your job isn't to look back at it, but it's to move forward. And it's to live like you've called us to live, to follow you, to surrender our lives no matter what it means to the cause of Christ and to do it not worrying about what anything or anybody else is doing around us. But as Joshua said to the people of Israel, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Lord, I pray that a people who have been held in bondage today would be released of that shame and serve and love you in a way that they never have before because you have met us in our place of defeat and given us victory. Thank you, Jesus, for this series. Thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection that it, in fact, does change everything. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted you as their Savior, who has never experienced the resurrection, that today would be the day of salvation. Let them come and speak to me. Let them speak to the person sitting next to them, a person at the Welcome Center. Lord, they wouldn't leave this place without knowing you as their Savior. Now, Lord, lead us from this place. We've studied your word. Now allow us to fellowship together. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.